everyone, this is Core Spirit, and today we have Simon as our guest, uh, who is a philosopher and a fitness coach, right? Well, you'll, you, I'll, I'll give you a chance to introduce yourself a bit later. Sure. Uh, but first, a little bit about Core Spirit. For those of you who are new to our channel, we're in a, an online platform and we have over 500 practices uh, on our platform and all of them have one big aim to help you enhance your life, become better, happier, healthier and find your path to personal freedom. And we have practitioners in Core Spirit. If you are a practitioner, Practitioner, by the way, you're really welcome to join. And we have uh, those who are seeking help and uh, they can read articles written by our practitioners, visit events, uh, meet others, discuss, and so on and so forth. So Simon, I'll give you a chance to introduce yourself, uh, maybe talk a bit about what you do. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... Uh... When I graduated from school, I studied philosophy at St. Andrews. And um, after that, I actually became a mariner. I worked many years on the sea. And about five years ago, I was working as a research assistant on a research vessel in Australia. And um, what happened was, is that, I think I'm getting ahead of myself, actually. So, um, but yeah, I was working as a research vessel. I was working as a research assistant on a vessel in Australia. And um, because it was a research vessel, what we had is we always had professionals on board. So we had engineers on board and mm -hmm. uh, marine biology PhD students and so on. They're all really smart people. And um, yeah, going back a bit, I've always exercised. I've always liked to work out. I've always liked to stay in shape. And so when I was working on this research vessel, what I would do is I would, I feel like I'm getting ahead of myself here. Yeah. I feel like I'm going to give you too much of an introduction and going to get spiraling out of control. Um, so yeah, a little introduction. I studied philosophy at St. Andrews. Um, since then I was a mariner uh, and I do part-time coaching. started doing part-time coaching when I started um, basically becoming obsessed with the idea of why people exercise, why some people exercise and why some people don't. Mm -hmm. And so for the last five years I've really been exploring and unpacking that topic in great detail. So that's a little intro. Right. Thank you. Thank you. That's that's fascinating how you go from being in the marina to being a coach. That's that's really interesting. And also philosopher. Wow. That that that's an interesting life, I'd say. Um, so let me quote you. You actually wrote me uh, that if you want to do more exercise you need more self-discipline and you say that it's a myth and that you disagree with that. So I first wanted to discuss that and why you think it's not true, why uh, we don't need more self-discipline if we want to exercise more. So yeah, so um, I think we overlook external factors. Uh -huh. um, I think we overlook what actually self-discipline means as well. So there's two ways of looking at it. If you look at it internally, so when we say self-discipline, a lot of people assume that that's something inherent within ourselves, that's something that sort of magically comes from within us. Some people have it and some people don't. And I would say the things that we find motivation for are based on the external stimuli, the external influences, the information we receive, the friends we have, the communities we're involved in. So that's where I would say the, the motivation comes from. 
And so I would say, as I said to you in the email, self-discipline, self-discipline we can think of as stemming from self-motivation. So we say, okay, I need to get motivated to do something. This is what I want to do right now that I don't really feel like doing now, but I know that it's going to be good for me in the future if I do this thing that I don't really feel like doing now. So then we formulate beliefs in our heads, which I would call our motivations. And then if we actually then do that task, mm-hmm. let's say going to the gym, then we say we're self-disciplined, right? So we, yeah. this, this idea we formulate as ideas in what we would call the self, right? We just jumble them up together, these beliefs in our prefrontal cortex. And then we create this motivation that if I do this thing, I don't really feel like doing right now, like going to the gym, then my life will be better later. And then if we actually do go to the gym, we say that I'm self-disciplined or that person self-disciplined. So that's thinking it from the internal side and the self, right? The other way of thinking about it is there are lots of external variables. Okay. So, so consider two guys, right? Two old friends who both decide that they're going to um, get back into shape. And the way they're going to do that is they're going to start swimming three times a week. Mm-hmm. Okay? And they both agree on that. But let's just consider the variable of one guy lives five miles from the nearest public pool and one guy lives one mile from the nearest public pool. Right? Mm-hmm. So is that distance going to be a factor? Is there means of transport? One guy drives, one guy doesn't. Are these going to be factors? Right? Then, of course, you have other variables like pricing, like the um, reliability of classes. Is the pool open 24, so the availability of the swimming pool, is it open to public 24-7, seven days a week? Or is it only open certain days of the week? Right? So if it's only open Thursdays and Fridays for the one guy and it's open every day of the week for the other guy, who's going to make a healthy habit? Who's going to be the more self-disciplined? Right? So the thing is, is that in society and the way we view ourselves is, we label one guy because he failed, one of those friends would fail to make a habit out of swimming every three times a week. He wouldn't manage it because of external factors. Not because he had less self-discipline or self-motivation than his friend, but simply because of these external economic factors were restraining him, right? And so I think we need to, when we start to think about our behavior, we need to start to think about all of the factors influence our behavior and then think, hold on, there's, there's something I want to do. If there's something we want to do, and normally that's virtuous behavior, maybe it's eating better, maybe it's exercising more, then we have a motivation, right? Mm-hmm. And what we think is we need things like pep talks. We need to be reminded of how important it is and how healthy it is and how terrible our lives going to be if we don't exercise or if we don't eat healthy. Whereas really what we should be doing is we should be looking at the bigger picture. We should be thinking about what is facilitating that behavior to me, right? Okay. How near away is the nearest gym? How much is it costing me? Can I afford it? How available is it? How available is it reflected to my schedule? Okay, is it easily accessible? What are my means of transport to get there? Okay, yeah. that's the facilit- that's the, those are things that would facilitate that behavior. And then we can also think of the things that actually create the motivation in the first place so that it is something that keeps you know, renewing itself. Because I'm not someone who believes that our motivations and our beliefs stem or arrive in our brain out of the ether magically. No, they come from input. They come from stimuli. And then the way we process those with our brain is then through different mechanisms. But I'm getting ahead of myself. But I just think we need to look at the big picture. Yeah. Wow. That, that's a really fascinating perspective. Actually, um, I feel like most of the coaches say that it's all within and it has to be your internal will to go and exercise. And you have to do it and you have to be disciplined. 
and uh, about those who say like oh the gym is too far or it's too expensive i can't afford it people usually say that they are just lazy they don't they lack this motivation and what do you say to those people then who think that yeah so i mean if i wanted to be technical about it you can just look at um you can just look at survey data so there's some old survey data um that just shows that 90% of people that attend a public swimming pool live within three miles of the pool, hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So if you live beyond three miles from the pool, right? And then you break yourself for lacking self-discipline, oh, I'm so lazy, or your friends there, oh, you're so lazy, you don't go to the pool, you signed up for that pool, but you don't go, right? Yeah. Well, should you be so hard on yourself because you have the same amount of willpower self-discipline as 90% of the population, of 90% of the people that go to that pool? No, you shouldn't. You should look at the factors. I mean, distance from distance from where we're going to exercise is one factor, mm -hmm. right? And I and I break down the obvious facilitators, what I call things that facilitate exercise, right, into four categories. There's, there's proximity; it's the distance. Then there's availability, which is to do with not just my availability in my time, right? Um, it's also to do with when my personal training is available, when the classes are available. Do they coincide with my schedule? And most importantly, are they consistent? Because if they're not consistent, we can't consistently plan ahead. And then I go into the brain processes of why we need more motivation, because if something is unprecedented or unplanned, then we need more motivation to then go to the gym in that moment, because yeah. our life hasn't been structured around a specific time. Same day, same, every day of the week, same time, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and then also, um, Price, obviously, a variable. So we, price is something that we want to keep low, but we also want to keep out of mind because if we're always considering the price, it's like a paper class business model or a gym membership. If we're always thinking about the price, then we have to factor that in. So we have to have more motivation to overcome spending that money. Mm -hmm. right? Whereas if we spend money over the course of the whole year, then we ended up thinking, oh, that's something I spent ages ago. I'm not going to go to the gym because I'm not motivated. So mm -hmm. find the balance. There's a study that found that... Um, People who pay by month are 17% more likely than people who spend for a full year's membership. Because mm -hmm. um, I think that's the steady balance between not paying too much, but then during that month, you're not thinking about the price when you go to the gym. Mm -hmm. And then also just things like other things that restrict our access. So whether or not the gym you go to has public parking or easy parking, so um, or does it have a bus stop nearby? If you're someone who has to go by bus, if you're the elderly, or if you're the young people who don't drive yet. So... These are other variables that, um, that need to be considered. And that's more sort of the urban planning side of things. Um, yeah, I mean, to just sort of take from um, the psychologist and economist Daniel Kahneman, yeah. uh, who wrote uh, in Fast and Slow. So he says, um, he says there's two ways. If you want to change some behavior, there's, there's two ways to do it. There's a good way and there's a bad way. He says the bad way is trying to buy increasing um, driving forces, right? And the good way is by diminishing restraining forces. So I would say that what he means by that is that the bad way is by saying to people, hey, come on, you can do this, try and motivate them. You just, you know, it's gonna be so good for your health, it's gonna be so good for your future, you're gonna be able to play with your grandchildren when you're older, you know, you're gonna have more autonomy and mobility. Those are the driving forces. Whereas really we should need to make it, what he means by removing restraining forces is make it easier. So a lot of my work is identifying what are those restraining forces? How do we make virtuous behavior, and in my specific case, exercising more, easier, right? Yeah. We'll look at our environment. 
what are the, what's the survey data telling us? What's the economic data telling us, you know? And so we can't just blanket stating people. A coach can't say to a whole class of people, oh, you, can, you guys, you need more self-discipline, you need more motivation if you're gonna to come to class three days a week. Well, okay, what about the single mother who's you know, got two kids, who's got two jobs, and has got a really busy schedule, right? Or, or, and lives far away from the gym, as opposed to the student who's got all the free time in the world, and he lives next door to the gym. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are just completely opposing you know, life situations with different you know, variables that are gonna affect the amount of times they can go to the gym or not. And it has absolutely nothing to do. The mother is probably more motivated than the student in many cases, or might be. Mm -hmm. but, so we can't just think it's just motivation, self-discipline. That's just, that's just nonsense. Yeah, I actually agree with you. And I think that when uh, people say like, yeah, you have to exercise, go do this, go do that. This is a healthy lifestyle. Then you feel so much pressure and so much stress that you just say, oh, no, I'll, I'll not do it. I don't want to do it. I don't know. For me, it works like this whether but on the other hand if there is some good option for me for example i dance and uh there is nice location and it's available and it's just convenient for me and i don't feel lazy going there and i go there and i never miss so yeah i think i agree with you on so that. so so why do you think that you don't feel lazy when you go to dance class because I don't know, it's just easy and I love it and it's basically on my way home and yeah. Okay, so one of the things we talked about was proximity. So it's on your way home, on your way home from work, I assume is what you mean. Yeah, right? yeah. Okay, right. So it's obviously in good proximity. So that's a good economic factor that's working in your favor, right? Or environmental variables working in your favor. Um, but yeah, you know, obviously there's things that make it easier. Um, well, you have a habit. So there's an automated brain process going on in your brain. It's, it's habitual for you. So there'll be a, an environmental cue when mm -hmm. you walk home that'll remind you every time and it'll trigger an automated behavior. I mean, you might, that signal will come through your visual fields and you might see the signposts near where your dance yeah. studio is. And then your brain will automate a behavior that you've done many times, which is to go inside, you know, walking through the door, turn left and walking through the door if it's, a, it's turning left. Right. Um, but that signal might also make its way to your prefrontal cortex. And maybe you'll consider, oh, is, the, is, going to the, you know, is going to the dance class good for me or not? But maybe you won't. Maybe your brain will be busy texting a friend or thinking about work, mm -hmm. but you'll still walk in the dance class because you've done that out of, um, out of habit and out of routine. So I would say that there are, because you've done it before, there are, so I talked about things that facilitate exercise a second ago. Yeah. Now what I'm talking about is things that stimulate. So there are subconscious stimuli like, the, the environmental cues like a signpost near your dance studio that's cueing you to do an automated behavior that you've hardwired your brain to do after repetition. So maybe you've gone five or six times already, and maybe at the beginning, this is why things are harder at the beginning, right? Uh, you know, there's a multitude of factors, but so um, it might also be because you have a community around your dance class already. Yeah. So you find it easy because you're getting constant reminders. You know, maybe you have a WhatsApp group that you're part of. And so this community is influencing that behavior and that's acting as a stimuli um, around that behavior. Whereas if it's a novel behavior, like going to the gym, well, for one, we avoid, we try and avoid novel situations because part of what I think effort is, is problem solving. 
-hmm. So our effort is something I think has happened in our prefrontal cortex and we need to solve a problem. So if you already know your dance studio, you know how to walk in, you know which room to go into, you know the teacher, you know that everyone gathers around, um, spreads out space between facing the mirror, you know all this process. So your brain feels really comfortable going back to that place. It yeah. doesn't have any inhibitors, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're saying can go to the gym, maybe you don't even know which gym. Maybe thinking I'm gonna take up, I don't know, Zumba or some, some other activity. And you're like, I don't even know what that is. I don't even know how the layout it is. And so your brain's saying all these things are, oh, that's gonna take effort. That's gonna take work in your prefrontal cortex that your brain is saying, you know what? Why you want it? Why are you trying to do this? Why, 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 why do you need to do this unnecessary behavior? Because it's what our brain considers unnecessary is because we haven't done it before. It's not directly linked to um, reproduction or eating or anything that we, our brain considers very necessary, mm -hmm. right? And so your brain gives you this emotion of lethargy, gives you this emotion of laziness. That's what laziness is. It's an emotion that comes out when our brain is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. you don't need to do that. Why are you doing that? You know, don't do something that's going to waste energy. It's going to waste energy in our brain and in our bodies. That's what the emotion of laziness is for. It's to prevent us from wasting our time and energy. Right? So how do we overcome that? And then we overcome that by obviously reducing the amount of time, energy, and effort by better facilitating exercise, by making our making sure we have a, a gym that's closer to home or a dance studio closer to home by making sure that we're not thinking about money because obviously money represents sacrificing time and energy right and then also maximizing the stimuli um, around that behavior yeah that's great so do you have uh, some tips maybe for those who don't have any behavior of exercising but who really want to start but just can't start i don't know for whatever reason maybe they don't have a gym nearby or maybe it's too expensive to take some classes do, do you have any advice on that um yeah so a mnemonic i use for facilitating because i think like Kahneman says, I think re reducing restraining forces is, is paramount. Obviously getting started is trickier. So the obvious tips are um, figure out what's going to work for you. But then what I would keep in mind is a mnemonic that I developed. I just call it PAPA. So I call it respecting your PAPA, uh -huh. right? And so if you want to change your behavior, or if you want to develop a virtuous ritual behavior, always keep in mind and respect your PAPA. So that stands for proximity, availability, price, and accessibility okay and if you're not doing something regularly that you want to be doing regularly look through those four factors and you'll probably find that one of those is inhibiting you you know maybe you moved house and the gym you used to go to is a further you know further distance of a drive you know um really think about that i'd also say um definitely adopt a community around whatever you're trying to do try and find something that's going to have a community or connect with a community that you already know. Maybe you have friends at work who are already going to a gym class. Mm -hmm. You're going to see those friends at work. They're going to remind you about the gym class. They're going to ask you if you're going to come to the gym class on a, on a daily or weekly basis. Those things are going to give you little reminders, little forms of stimuli, a little bit of input into your brain that's going to drive you, create an intention to go back to that gym class. So find the community. I was talking with a consultant for um, uh, a big gym in the UK recently. And I was talking about this. I was saying, um, basically, it was, a, it was a London gym that they just set up uh, a few years ago. And they'd invested a lot of money. It was 1.2 million pound investment. Uh, had two really nice studios. And it was a paper class gym. And everyone said they loved the gym. 
everyone, all the surveys, everyone who went there, like, I love it. It's amazing. But it was a paper class, uh, paper class business model and they weren't getting client retention. So they were losing about 30,000 pounds every month. Mm-hmm. Right. And now they're trying to sell because they didn't adopt this, this mentality. And I was talking to one of the other consultants on, um, on the project on trying to figure out to get better client retention. And I said, well, I hadn't actually visited the space. I was doing it like this over, over a conference call. And I said, um, well, does it have any um, public space where people can socialize? I said, oh no, there's the front desk and there's the two studios. Okay, well, do you offer any um, sort of like offers so that people can all join and congregate at a nearby cafe? So people who go to them can congregate and socialize and come out. And one of the, um, one of the consultants, she sort of interrupted me and she said, well, no, we did a survey on people and we did a survey and, and asked if people want to meet new friends at the gym and people said no. It was overwhelming. People said no. And I said, okay, great. But those aren't the people who are going to go to the gym regularly because what influences our behavior a lot of the time is a community stimulating and reminding us and telling us where to go and telling us about events around that behavior. So uh, community is, is definitely central to developing a healthy habit. There are people who and go for a run regularly and go to the gym regularly and don't do around the community, but they've developed that. They have other inputs. They have that habitual um, stimuli. They're automated to do that. You know, it's part of their daily routine. Those people will probably find that if they moved house or moved to another country or injured themselves for a long period, getting back into that routine would be quite challenging and quite hard. And that's where a community is quite paramount for the real long-term community is is absolutely essential. Um, And the way you, where you get into a community, um, the way you maximize the influence of a community is through communication interaction. You can think of it as a graph. You know, it's inversely, the amount of influence a community will have on your behavior is inversely proportional to the amount of communication interaction you have with other members of that community. So it doesn't have to be an actual community that you know face to face. Another way, I, what I chapter in my book is called one-click conditioning. Mm-hmm. So what I call one-click conditioning is, is today we have social networks, well, these communities. Say you have absolutely no interest in exercising, no interest in um, British, uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but you say to yourself, okay, I'm gonna take up Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Well, go on Facebook or your YouTube channel um, or your YouTube, uh, on YouTube, and that's your YouTube account, and then search for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and then follow every YouTube channel about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, or if you're on Facebook, you know, um, follow every page, follow every business. And then the algorithms will think that that's an interest of yours and they'll continually present you with information. They'll present you with classes and people and you'll watch videos and all that information that'll provide guidance for you to how to do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. You then you won't feel so uncomfortable when you go to your first Brazilian Jiu Jitsu class, you'll probably see information about Brazilian Jiu Jitsu classes near you. That suddenly has connected you with the community because community interaction, communication doesn't have to be two way communication can be, one way and so you can just be receiving that input from that community um just by a few clicks on your you know on your phone or on your computer you can then basically design the input that's going to influence your behavior around an activity that you want to adopt they say that you need 21 day to get some to get a habit do you agree with that and why where is that number from uh i don't know where that number's from um, obviously what happens is it changes with age, obviously young children and babies, their brains are very malleable. Um, so they have neuroplasticity. 
what's happening is the neurons are getting coated with myelin and what myelin does it's a white matter that coats uh, neurons and makes the speed of neurons traveling faster mm -hmm. um, and so that's how we develop your behavior so if you think of um, uh, if you think of a baby have you ever seen a, a newborn baby Superman baby or like a baby that's like two weeks old they're lying on the floor like this they're just they're just flopping their limbs around and they're just like breathing everything around their lips are kind of moving funny directions right and so I like to think of that and I, and I, and I use this in my book I like to think of that as like a little gnome in their heads and he suddenly he's found himself in a control room with loads of levers and pulleys and he has no idea what any of them do so the way he figures out is he just starts pulling levers and and, and and, and turning cogs and pulling pulleys, and finally he's okay, pulls a lever, he sees an arm move, right? And gradually over time, he figures out how to do things, but it takes a lot of concentration, right? He has to be there pulling that lever, he has to pull that pulley to make, you know, a baby go and scratch his nose, okay? Right? So you get the input, the stimuli, itchy nose, right? From the nose, he sees it in the brain, he's like, okay, I gotta, I gotta move the arm up, I gotta move the elbow, and I gotta scratch the nose. But then myelination and habitual behavior, we can think of it as like that gnome. What he does is, and we can think of the gnome as like our prefrontal cortex, the, the concentration side of the active, you know, thinking about how to do things. He says, okay, well, I've got some string. So next time the switch comes down for the input for an itchy nose, right, I'm just going to tie off some string to that switch and I'll tie it off to the lever that does the arm and then I'll tie it off to the lever that moves the finger. And then next time the input comes in, do it's like clockwork. It just goes dum dum dum, hands it to the nose, right? He doesn't have to be there. He doesn't have to be present. He doesn't have to think about it. And that's really how our habitual behavior works, yeah. right? But he had to figure that out first. He had to repeat it. And then he had to know which neurons to myelate, which cogs and levers to cut together. And we had to know which neurons to myelinate to then create that habitual movement, basically that unconscious movement. And so it's the same for motor skills. So that's a basic motor skill of scratching your nose. It's a, basic, it's a couple of basic motor skills. And then all of exercise is just a combination of various motor skills and actually all of human behavior is just a combination, complex combination of basic motor skills. Um, and yeah, sorry, did that answer your question? It, it uh, just takes time to habitualize behavior. Yeah, but how much time? Is 21 day enough or no? So it changes with age because obviously as we get, as we were young, our brains are very neuroplastic. So we have a lot of myelin in our brains. We can. Uh, we can uh, fortify new neurons very quickly, but then our brains get sort of set in their ways. So and we sort of know that if you are an addict to a drug, so it's a bit like addictive, addictive behavior, you know, you sort of, you sort of see environmental cues and they trigger, you know, an intention to perform an habitual behavior. Mm -hmm. Maybe you see the corner where you bought drugs and you sort of go and do that, right? So um, we know that if you were addicted to something when you're in your teenage years or not addicted, you're more likely to have relapse in your older, you're less likely to have relapse in your older, depending on whether or not work it's not in your teenage years so 21 days it's not 21 days for everybody for someone in their 60s they have to repeat behavior a lot a lot, lot. brains still can learn new behaviors but to make it like an automated habit they've got to repeat that behavior a lot a lot a lot a lot, a lot and they still have to have healthy brains right and it'll probably take more than 21 days and it's not just amount of days it's the number of times you actually repeat the actual thing so it's like 21 days is like a it's a useful methodology but it's not not actually specific because it's actually how many times you repeat that specific motor skill that specific the combination of those specific motor skills that culminate in that behavior that you want to make a habit and then it's also a case of how complex is that behavior right if i um if i want to make it an automated habit of walking my front door and doing five push-ups 
right? Then I can do that several times because as soon as I open my door, my brain is going to be like, oh no, after you open the door, you do five push-ups. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's simple behavior. But if my brain is like, well, after you walk through the front door, you need to, um, need to call Jamie, ask him if he's at the tennis club, uh, then go down, get your tennis racket from the car, go to that's a lot of different movements, a lot of behaviors. And so before that becomes, you can make the calling Jamie a little habit. 20, um, I don't know, for me at my age, I'm, I'm 35, 21 times, I'll, I'll try 21 times over 21 days. So the next time I want to create a new habit and see if it suddenly becomes, becomes automated. But it'd be less for a teenager than it would be for a six year old. That's what I can say. There. Okay, okay, I understand, thank you. Um, another, I have another question about motivation also. So imagine a person that understands that they need to exercise for health reasons, I don't know, any other reasons, but they just don't want to exercise. Can they get this habit of exercising um, by only getting these cues and anchoring uh, their behavior to the future? but without actually wanting to exercise. Is it possible? Um, well, so, so there's two opposing intentions in their brain, saying that they want to exercise. And obviously if they want to exercise and they're not doing it, that is usually something that it's a belief, it's a belief, it's a, mo- it's a motivation, right? Because they're thinking, I'd ask them, well, why is it you want to exercise? Well, I want to exercise because and it'll be belief that they have. So well, people, lots of people have told me that exercise is good for me. Okay, what else? Or maybe I, I don't like being overweight. Um, okay, right. So, and you think that exercise, yeah, but they don't, they never, maybe they've never experienced it. They haven't exercised to see results. So like I said before, it's a vivid motivation, right? Mm-hmm. And they're not exercising. Okay, so they're not exercising. You said that they don't want to. So you said they don't, they want to exercise and get healthy, but they don't want to exercise. So you said, gave me two opposing Posing motivations, which, um, which a lot of people have. Um, so then I would say, well, it would depend on which belief is the most vivid. Will then create the intention, but then of course, how strong that intention will depend on and, and the strength. You get a, a certain strength of intention, right? Depending on which one of those is the most vivid, because they're opposing, and we have opposing beliefs all the time, right? Um, but then we have to say which of those beliefs is the most vivid. So maybe the most vivid is, um, no, I remember when I was a kid, I was exercising and I got embarrassed at the gym because I was overweight. I got embarrassed in the changing was overweight. And that's a trauma. So that's something that is creating a, um, a negative intention or an inhibitor to going and exercising. And then there's the abstract belief of, oh, in my life, I know it's, I should exercise because I want to be healthy, but I don't want to do it because I have this trauma. So that would be sort of a way you could sort of exemplify what we're, what we're saying. One is quite vivid because one is something that a person's actually would experience, right? Whereas the other is more abstract because it's just based on information that people have given them about what are the benefits of good health. Um, so there'll be ways that you can increase the effectiveness of the vivid belief about health, right? So you can, you can, obviously this is, Again, this is Kahneman's bad way, right? It's increasing the driving forces, but you can get them to see information on, on more information on why exercise is good for their health, increases autonomy, um, mobility, get them to imagine scenarios where they perhaps were more mobile, um, get them to think about 
perhaps their children or their potential children or their grandchildren wanting to play with them or, or imagine, make them visualize bad situations where they couldn't bend over to get their, pick up their shoes when they're older or, or they might lose their job and then they wouldn't be able to support their families because you know, they'd, they'd be on welfare or whatever it might be and benefits. So that would be the bad way, but you could increase the motivation and the driving force for their, to create an intention. So that's bringing the stronger stimulation, getting the intention to exercise. Um, and if you can do it so it's stronger, but then it's also going to depend on how much energy, effort, and time they need to expend before they can actually start exercising. So then you have to consider the environmental, external economic factors, which are then facilitating exercise. Mm -hmm. And if you get the equation right, okay, if you get the equation right, and you can make the intention for novel virtuous behavior strong enough, and then it's going to depend on how well facilitated it is. Right? Okay. Okay. So this, you know, theoretically, if, if you got this up to a three, but facilitation is only the one, you're only going to get, you know, a frequency of one. Sorry, a frequency of three. But if you suddenly can improve the facilitation and make it three, well, you get a frequency of nine. Right? So three, three, and nine. So you're going to increase the frequency um, by improving the facilitation. Awesome. Sounds great. Okay. Um... One more question. Uh, I saw your blog and there you had an article uh, where you say that it doesn't make sense to be fit. And I wanted to ask you about that and what you meant because it sounds like, what? <laughs> You're a fitness coach, right? Yeah, so obviously the, the, the title is there to sort of hook people uh, into the article. Um, yeah, so... Um, my book, my first book that I'm finishing up now, I, 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 when I started writing a book five years ago, I, did, I was writing about fitness in general. Mm -hmm. And then I was forced because a friend of mine was like, listen, it's too much stuff, but I had to divide it. So I, I focus on the first book that I'm finishing now is um, how to do more physical activity. So as we've been talking about, what are the sort of psychological, environmental, uh, economic factors that are keeping some people on the sofa and get, taking some people to the gym? Mm -hmm. That's what we've been talking about now. The other stuff was um, why we should do more physical activity and why we should do fit. And fitness is something, this word that we use. Um, and so I ended up, I'm a philosopher, so I ended up getting a bit philosophical about uh, fitness and the definition of fitness. And I've done CrossFit for seven, several years. I'm also a CrossFit coach. And so I was quite fascinated with the way they tried to ground the definition of fitness um, and what it is to be fit. And that article, I was just talking about the fact that um, there is no um, context-independent definition of fit because fitness um, is uh, a, an ancestral synonym of suitability. It's like a peg. If a peg fits in a hole, so it has to fit into a specific hole. It, uh, like a round peg only fits into a round hole and a square peg only fits into a square hole. So it depends on context. And it's the same with fitness. You can't say, I'm fit, or she's fit, or I want to be fitter because it technically doesn't make any sense. It has to be fit for what? You have to be either fit for uh fit for battle uh, or fit for um a wrestling match or fit for a marathon or fit for a sprint uh, and i'm just about to put out another article that goes into the specifics for crossfit and fitness and more examples that article that i posted was just pointing out that um yeah that the idea we have of fitness the word that we use today actually is a uh, it, it branches from 
a synonym of suitability and something is only suitable to a context in the same class to fitness. So if people say, don't you want to be fit? You have to say, well, fit for what? Specifically, what am I going to be fit for? Because if it means being a fit human being, a good fit as a human being, well, we have a word for that and we call it being healthy. Uh, so um, it becomes obsolete. So, yeah. Cool. So is there a perfect shape of the body or no, in your view? Uh, I would say definitely no. No. So is it like uh, individual for every person? Yes, definitely. It depends on context because, um, I mean, human society is hugely complex. There's a multitude of movements that we do just for pleasure. There's also a multitude of activities that we have uh, given ourselves to perform and function. And so, um, you know, our society is hugely complex. Some people, there's a, there's a lot of moral questions. Do some people need to sit at a computer all day? Do some people need, if you want to get a certain body shape, like the winner of the CrossFit Games or, you know, these um, triathletes or marathon runners, you have to be training six hours a day. Now, if everyone was training six hours a day, then we'd lose all of our doctors and, and politicians and lawyers. And, you know, we'd lose all these and engineers. We'd lose all these professions because you actually need to be studying, working and learning. Um, and then you get a different body type. And so in the bigger picture, the perfect body type, uh, I would say, no, that doesn't apply. It depends on context. It depends on your functional role in society. depends on your functional role in your life, within your community, within your family. Um, and then I'd say, you need to decide what's your body type for that role. That's what you want to be fit for. And then you decide what your body type should be. And that would be your ideal body type for that role. Um, and that would vary with circumstances. Awesome. I love that. Well, thank you so much. I think that's all uh, we have time for today. It's been it a pleasure. Was, it was a great pleasure. Yeah, and really interesting. I'm sure the audience will love it as well. Okay, I'm glad. Uh, Thanks. Uh